Well, I'd like to read our verses again to you, John chapter 15, verse 7 and 8. If you abide in me, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Well, many years ago, there was a time in my life when I had to go on a number of business trips to meet people that I spoke with on the telephone daily. Remember, we business, those of you who've been around a long time, we used to speak to people all of the time. And many of you know the drill uh, going on a business trip. You drive to the airport, you hop on the plane, you land, you either get a taxi or a car service, or you rent a car. Then you go over to your hotel if it's a multi-day trip. Uh, you're eating out generally, and then you're involved in meetings most of the day. Uh, the man I spoke with the most was a man uh, that I spoke to a few times a day, sometimes five, six times a day, and his name was Butch. And Butch lived in San Antonio, Texas. And I told Butch that, Butch, I'm coming down to San Antonio, and this is my itinerary. Just wanted to let you know what's going on. And he says to me in his Texas accent, you're not staying in a hotel, Jim. He said, you're staying at my house. You won't need a car because I'm going to come pick you up in my pickup truck. And during the day, we went around to some places, and there were indeed some, some formal meetings. But at night, I stayed with Butch at his house. And uh, we, his wife treated us like a king, fed us really well. Uh, I rested there. Uh, interestingly enough, what we did was he really loved that TV series, Lonesome Dove, and in the time, few days that I was there, we watched the whole Lonesome Dove series, and he narrated it along with it, telling me about each character. He'd watched it so many times. If you haven't seen it, it's six and a half hours long. We didn't do it all in, in one night, uh, but we did that. And so again, there I got to, after a day's work, I got to rest, and I got to relax, and I relied on Butch and his wife for all that I needed. In some ways, that was, is similar to the title of what I've entitled today's message, The Three R's of the Abiding Life. The Three R's of the Abiding Life. And, and here they are. We'll go through them again slowly. Remain, which you might say stay. Remain, rest, and rely. Remain, rest, and rely. So let's set the context. It's the night before the cross, before Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of the world. And we have to stop there for one second and talk about what we mean by that. Uh, what we mean by Jesus died for the, on, on the cross so whoever would put their trust in him would receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Theologians call that saying it's being actualized. And the Last Supper has ended the night before the cross, and Jesus is giving his final instructions uh, to the apostles. And it's kind of interesting the way you, if you know the relationship up to this point in time between Jesus and the apostles, I used to think the apostles were these mighty guys who walked like a foot off the ground, but they were kind of bumbling when, G when they were walking around with Jesus. And, and so it was sort of like the way a, a mother births a baby it seems like for them, the umbilical cord is about to be cut, but Jesus will still be with them even after he dies and ascends into heaven through the person and power of the Holy Spirit. Now, whether the apostles realize it or not, Jesus is teaching them how to carry on spreading the good news and living the Christian life, what Jesus calls fruit or being fruitful, he's teaching them how they are going to do it without him. Now, there's an important tension. We've talked about this many times before, but it's good to remind ourselves of this, or maybe you're new with us and you have welcome. You haven't heard this stuff before, but there's an important tension as we study the word of God, and it is between, on the one hand, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Now, they're not opposites, they, they work together in tension. Some of you have heard maybe the tension of a bridge. If the tension isn't correct, then the bridge falls into the ocean. So tension is a good thing when it's perf in perfect balance. You may want to word it this way. There's God's part and there's our part. 
in chapter 14, Jesus largely talked about God's part. Here in chapter 15, which we've been studying for the past few weeks, it's explaining our part. Jesus has been teaching us that our relationship with him is like a branch. We are the branch, and it is connected to a vine. Jesus is the vine. So let's just go over a couple basic things. How do we get connected to the vine? The first thing is we must be in Christ. We call that being saved or salvation. That is God's part. It's not our part. It's God's part. The second thing is we we talked about uh, God the Father was the gardener, and, and the gardener will prune or clean us so we bear more fruit. That is God's part, not our part. God's the gardener. He's the, he does the pruning or cleaning. The third part is that we must remain or stay connected to the vine. The branch must stay connected to the vine. Remember last week we said a branch that is not connected to the vine is dead. It is just a stick. We must stay connected to the vine And that is our part. And that's what we want to focus on today. So if you're taking notes, the first R of the abiding life is remain. Remain in Christ. Verse 7, we're going to spend almost the entirety of the message today on verse 7. So don't worry, it's like, oh my goodness, he hasn't even gotten to verse 8 yet. We're going to spend almost the entirety of the message on verse 7. And we're going to break it up actually into three parts, which is why I wanted to read the, the whole part, the whole text first. He says this, if you abide in me, let, let's just stop right there. He says, Jesus says to them and to us, remember the apostles are representative disciples. A disciple is simply a learner and follower of Jesus. If, I call this the massive if, this is, a, this is huge, this if. You, you may want to circle that in your Bible and draw an arrow all the way out to the margin, right? Massive if. If you abide in me. Another version says, if you remain in me. Or if a man remains, or woman, remains in me. That's where I get the R for on this, for remain. Now, it's an important reminder to us, or if you haven't been with us, uh, this life is for those that we're talking about in chapter 15, is for those that are in Christ. Judas has already left. He's not part of this discussion. They're for those that are in Christ, or what we call sometimes rescued by Christ, or safe in Christ. They have, as Jesus said, repented and believed. To repent is to turn, so they turn away from their self-directed life, away from their sinful life, and they, uh, they turn to God for the God-directed life, and they believe or they trust in Jesus the way to get to heaven, the way to the, have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in heaven with God. So right out of the box, I just want to tell you something right now. If you're here today and you're listening to us, watching us, and you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're like, I I want to be, I just don't know what I need to do. What does my response need to be to God? It is simply, you need to respond by repenting and believing, by turning to God and putting your trust in Jesus. And and you know what? You, You can actually do that right now. That's actually something that's very quick. You can basically say in some sense to God, Lord, I know my life's not fruitful because I'm not connected to you. I know I'm not, I don't know you. I know I'm not in Christ because I'm not connected to you. I'm going to turn to you now because I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead And by trusting in him and not myself anymore, if you think you're going to heaven because you're a good person, you're trusting in yourself, but I'm going to trust in Jesus' perfect life and death and resurrection, and I know that by doing that, you're going to receive me into your kingdom. Friend, you can do that right now, right where you are. In other places in the Gospel of John, 
the word for abide or remain is translated the word stay. Let me give you an example. Back in John chapter 1, you can turn there if you want, or we can put the words up on the screen. It says this in chapter 1, verse 37 through 39. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. One of them was Andrew, who's the apostle Peter's brother. Verse 38, then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, Uh, then there's this editorial that John puts in there, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? Where are you abiding? He said to them, Jesus said, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and notice this, they remained with him that day. Now, there's an interesting parenthesis right after that. It says, now it was about, the 10th hour. That tells us in their time of day, uh, it was about 4 p.m. What does that have to do with the story? You know, actually not much of anything other than the fact that it's getting late. That lets us know there's an eyewitness account provided those little details. One of the reasons we know that the scripture is true. So part of abiding in Christ is staying with Jesus. It is being with Jesus. It is getting to know Jesus. It is both talking to him, and I would say, more importantly, it is listening to him. Now, many, many people who, whether they were raised in the church or they are committed followers of Jesus Christ, know what Jesus said is the greatest commandment that you are to, and it actually comes from the Old Testament, but Jesus said you are to love God with all your heart, and your soul, and your mind. So that would be the greatest commandment. But I think it's fair to say that abiding is the follower of Jesus's greatest responsibility. So on the one hand, we have the greatest commandment, how we are to love God, but our greatest responsibility, I believe, is to abide in Christ. Because if we don't abide, if we don't remain, if we don't stay with Jesus, we can't go anywhere in the Christian life. We'll find the Christian life empty and frustrating. You say, well, who do you think you are to say that? I didn't say it. Don't you remember verse 5 of this chapter? Jesus said, for without me, you can do nothing. Another version said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, loved ones, please pay attention. This is a conscious decision. It's a conscious choice. Every individual follower of Jesus must make. It is a responsibility that is a matter of the will. Let me slow down. I don't want anybody to miss this. Jesus is commanding us to abide in the vine. It's a great responsibility. So therefore, it must be on our part a conscious decision, which a lot of you have been telling me, like I'm really trying to be aware of abiding in the vine, music to a pastor's ear. This is a conscious decision, a conscious choice that every individual follower of Jesus must make. It is a matter of the will. Like any relationship we have, we must choose to participate. We must choose to stay in a good relationship, actively involved and actively engaged. And as we will see, this is impossible with God apart from the Word of God in prayer And when we come to the New Testament letters of the apostles, they will really stress, in addition to the word of God in prayer, the necessity of being engaged in church life. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But I would say that there's actually even more. I would say that abiding in Christ will give you the confidence of knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. That you have really 
trusted in him and your faith has been actualized in your life. It's in motion in your life. It's not a dead thing. It's a, it's a living faith. And you will know that God, when you're living for Christ, when you're abiding, you will know that you have been received by God, as the scripture says, the apostle Paul told us, by grace through faith. By grace, God's part, through faith, your part. Now, we could argue all afternoon about where the faith comes from, whether that came from within us or God gave it to us. I'll let you and your friends uh, talk about that one over lunch. But you, whether, no matter, even if God gave it to you, remember, you do have to believe and I have to believe. Now, let's think about our relationship with God for a second. I've heard a lot of people say, um, God hates me. You know, you just don't understand. God hates me. Well, you can't be in a good relationship with someone who can't stand you. So you got to throw that one right out the window. And, and you also can't be in a good relationship with someone that you can't stand because you will ultimately not trust them and you will ultimately doubt their care for you. So if you doubt God's care for you, simply look at the cross on a daily basis and you will see God's love and care for you. You see, in any relationship this is true, and it's certainly true with God, is you really won't believe, trust, that God has received you or God loves you or God cares for you or wants a relationship with you if you're completely always focused on yourself. And a lot of us don't realize that in America, we are very much marketed to trust in ourselves or only care about ourselves. We need to put our trust in what Christ has done for you, what the Father has done for us through his Son. And we have to stay there. We have to stay there. We have to remain there. The second R in abiding in Christ is resting in Christ. Resting in Christ. Let's continue in verse 7. We just read this. If you abide in me, and there's something else. After the big if, there's one condition, and now there's a second condition on it. If my words abide in you. Stop right there. My words abide in you. So to abide in Christ, again, our greatest responsibility, arguably our greatest responsibility as Christians, our part, we must remain with Jesus. We must stay close to Jesus. And he says, and my words abide in you. We must rest in his words. Now, how can you rest in Jesus' words, or Jesus' word, if you don't know what it says. You can't. Now, sometimes people say, well, I learned it when I was a kid. It's a living word. It's living and breathing. It, 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 it comes to you and talks to you about different things in your life. And let's say you're 30, you need to know different things about your life than you needed to know when you were five. <laughs> so the same verse that might be mommy and daddy taught a five-year-old is not going to have the same effect on the verse that it's going to have on you now as a 30-year-old. So in this sense, when we talk about his word living inside of us, and John chapter 1 puts the word in Jesus as being interchangeable, we realize the promise of Jesus living inside of us is experienced by his word living inside of us. I find sometimes it goes like this. I'm, I'm reading my Bible and all of a sudden I'm just shocked. Now, why would I be shocked on something I've read over and over again? Because as I'm reading it, God has brought something new to my mind or new to my heart. Or I find myself being emotional you know, I always say, if you, if you don't have a box of tissues where you read your Bible, maybe you should invest in one because all of a sudden something comes to my mind that maybe is very, very sad. Now, resting at God is an interesting 
thing. We often say, we talk about waiting on the Lord. People are like, what are you doing? Like, I'm just waiting on the Lord. Waiting is what we do when we're waiting for God to fulfill his promises. Resting is a little bit different. Uh, resting at times is passive. It, it, it's passive. Uh, we transfer the events of our lives to Jesus, and we let him handle it. There's nothing we can do about it. Some of you have heard the story that from years ago when I had my back surgery, I was lying in the hallway, and they were going to take me into the operating room. And so the doctor comes up to me, and he says, how you doing? And I go, this is great. My poor wife, her face was as white as the snow. And so I said, this is great. And, and he looks at me like, why is this great? I go, there's nothing I can do about this. Because there was a worry that I was going to become, or a concern that I was going to become paralyzed. And so, uh, I mean, I couldn't really move much the, the, my, the lower part of my body. And I said, I'm totally in God's hands. There's nothing I can do about this. So he looks at the nurse, the surgeon looks at the nurse, and he goes, it's funny what people say when the, med when the, uh, you know, the, the medicine kicks in, and she goes, I haven't given it to him yet. <laughs> and he looked at me like, what kind of a nut job are you? But there was nothing I could do about it. I was totally in God's hands. Notice I didn't say I was in his hands. I was in God's hands. There's other times in our resting when we are active. We obey the word of the Lord and we do the things we know that the word of God would have us to do. So obeying the word of the Lord is a sign that to you that you are resting in Christ's way and not your own. It is a sign that you are living at that moment an abiding life. Well, let's think about the apostles. It's the night before the crucifixion. Soon, they, they, the city's hot. People are looking for Jesus. They're kind of confused. They're young guys, probably late teens, early 20s. And, and soon, it's amazing how much trust Jesus put in somebody of that age. And we, we would never do that, but, but Jesus does. We should do more of that. Uh, soon, the apostles will be in a panic about Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, about the phony trials and convictions as a criminal done by the religious leaders who cannot invoke the death penalty and need to hand him over to the Romans. We studied that in Matthew. The, the religious leaders convict him of blasphemy, saying that he was God, and the Romans of say, they told the Romans, well, he says he's a king, and if he says he's a king, you know what Caesar said, that he's the only king, so Caesar says you have to kill him, and then he's gonna die on the cross. So they're in a complete panic, and it's Jesus seems to be teaching them that his presence with them, his personal dwelling in them, which will take place in the person and power of the Holy Spirit, as we said before, is actually going to be experienced when they realize, not in that necessarily in that moment, but certainly they will later on, that the word of God is dwelling in them. And when you get into the Word of God and you get the Word of God into you, you will be amazed how often it comes to mind things that you could never remember. Don't worry about getting it exactly right. Don't worry about having the address exactly right, you know, chapter and verse, but just, wow, God says this and this was for that moment. That's why we say sometimes people come out of a sermon, they go, well, I really didn't get much out of it, and I'll always go, today. But you'll need this someday. So this all logically means that we cannot have Jesus apart from his word and we can't abide, we can't remain, we can't be attached to the vine without resting in the word of God. Now, this is a little bit sad to me because it seems to me that many people want Jesus without his teaching. Many people want Jesus without the responsibilities that come with being a follower of Jesus, without the responsibilities that the Word of God gives to his people. Some people are like, oh, you don't have to do anything. The Word of God is constantly telling us for Christians how they are to live out once they put their trust in Jesus Christ. So if you, don't, if you want Jesus but you don't want his teaching, if you want Jesus but you're not willing to live up to the best of your can with God's help, the power of the word of God living, living out the Christian life in your life. If you don't want those things, 
friend, I want to be as honest as I can with you and as loving as I can. You're not abiding. You're just not. See, there's a, there's a big, big problem in the church today. And I want to say it to you as honestly as I can, but perhaps for some of you, you just need the firm love of, of, of God's rod and staff, of God's pruning to talk to you at this moment. You see, there's a big reason to be able, for me to be able to say that very few Christians are abiding. Very few Christians are abiding. And I find no pleasure in saying that. You say, well, do you have any kind of evidence of that? Well, last week, the American Bible Society, I got this email to me from about like 10 people. Last, last week, the American Bible Society released its 10th annual State of the Bible survey. 10th annual State of the Bible survey and talking about the Bible reading habits of Americans. And consistent with the last few years, interesting, they don't call it Bible reading. They call it scripture engagement. I love that term. I just think that's such a good term because you can sit and read the Bible and be like, you know, oh, read the Bible, checked it off my list. God must be pretty happy with me. No, they talked about scripture engagement, that scripture engagement is continuing over the last 10 years. It wasn't great 10 years ago, but it is continuing to decline among self-proclaimed Christians. Check this out. In 2019, 35% of Christians said they only use their Bible when they go to church. So you know that a lot of people put their Bible you know, on their, in their car somewhere and it's kind of sunbeaten, and they're like, yeah, maybe I should get a new Bible. That, that sunbeaten Bible, if your Bible's sunbeaten from only using it in church, it's time for a new Bible, and one that you're going to take with you wherever you go. It's, it's, that's why I like to write in my Bible, because then when I come to it again, the passage, I've, I've got some memory joggers for me. Now, 35% 2019, now it's 2020, same percentage. That's a big problem. 35%, more than one-third, only read their Bible when they are in church. Now, some of you might say, well, those are marginal Christians. You know, those are the people at the church down the street. That, that's not us, Pastor Jim. Well, the survey also indicated that right now, only 9%—9%—9% of self-proclaimed Christians engage with the Bible daily. Only 9%. Now, listen, if you miss a day here and there, I think you can say that that's, we understand that. And I think that God, God knows that, and, and you can engage with God in many, many different ways— uh, when you're in the Word of God regularly. But that, 9%, is the lowest in the history of the survey. And interesting, the study concluded that there was a direct correlation um, between people's lack of church attendance and their engagement with people in the church. So the 9% that were daily readers were very much Regular church attenders. Now, regular church attenders is, is defined as twice a month now. People used to go to church, gosh, a lot of times church had three services a week, so that could be 12 times a month. But I think that that 9% probably is people who go almost at least once a week. And so they concluded that the correlation, again, was between church attendance and engagement with the people in the church in some type of either group setting or discipleship thing or something like that, really proving to us, Proverbs 27, 17, that iron sharpens iron, that, that we have a big effect on one another in keeping us engaged in the Scriptures. Maybe it's just motivating us. You know, you hear some guy in a, or some woman in a, in a group that you're in, and you're like, wow, how did you learn so much Bible? And they go, one day at a time, man. Took years, but it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey. Also, this was interesting that uh, the people, number of people that are considered unchurched is on the rise. Now, a lot of people think, well, that's just the young people. they just walking away from the church, but that's not really what they were talking about. And again, I want to say this in love. Uh, 
If you have not attended church, now you're attending right now, I get it. But if you have not attended church in the last four to six months, you are now considered to be unchurched. And I think we all know that if we're not careful, four to six months of skipping anything can go by very, very quickly. So if we're not uh, staying or remaining with Jesus and we're not resting in his word, we're not abiding in him. And that is not good for a Christian and that is not good for the world. The reality is we can't rest in the promises of God unless we are being freshly filled with the promises of God. Can I say that again to you? I know I'm repeating myself here and there, but there are some really important key things we need to remember. We can't rest in the promises of God unless we are being freshly filled anew with those promises. And I'm going to tell you, five years ago, this month, if I was preaching five years ago today, when I was telling you that, it probably would have been through some very difficult experiences in my life, and I've had a lot of them prior to five years ago. But though what I just said has never been as real to me as it has been in the last five years. In a few weeks will be the five-year anniversary when something happened to me neurologically that is very, very difficult to explain, very difficult for doctors to understand. And so for five years, I've been just a, a neurological train wreck or shipwreck, however you want to say it. And yet, so many of you have said to me, we have seen God's strength and power in you in such an incredible way in the last five years. I mean, I've had days when, you know, I've been kind of shocked. If I get shocked, I have these sort of mini seizures or these mini episodes. When I get up onto the stage, and I don't even know my name. I couldn't even tell you my own social security number. And yet, God has been so faithful. I've had times driving in the car and, and, and hearing on our radio station me preaching and remember how I fe felt that day and been, started to cry and said, God, you are so faithful. And you know, you'll never, you'll never really understand God's faithfulness without a daily intake of the word of God when he is telling you things and then either you're watching them lived out in somebody else's life or watching them lived out in your life or you know that they are coming in your life. Now, all of this stuff about making a determined effort, you can take this as a negative if you want. That's your choice. There's nothing I can do about that. Or you can see it as a path to rest for your tired and anxious soul. For many of you, I know this to be true. There was probably a time in your life that you would call the abiding years or the abiding months or the abiding weeks. And, and you remember those times. Why, why can I say the past five years? Do I like living what I've lived out? No. But I've been holding on for dear life, let me tell you. I feel like I'm on the roller coaster and realize they never strapped me in. That's the way I feel every day. So if that's you, if, if you feel like there was a time when you were abiding and now that time seems to be gone, the word of God is the key back. Take this as an invitation from the king of saying to you, I want you to come back. I want to have that relationship with you. So from remaining in Christ, staying with Christ, to resting in Christ, the third R is abiding uh, in Christ, and abiding in Christ is relying on Christ. So the third word is rely, relying on Christ. Let's look at the end of verse seven, just the end, and then we're gonna go back to the entirety of verse seven. 
The end of verse 7, sadly, is one of the most misused verses in the entirety of the New Testament. It's a great way to raise money. It's a great way to lie to people and get them to, to buy into your stuff and to, and to you know, just say, if, it doesn't, if you don't get what you want, well, I guess you didn't have enough faith. So let's listen to this. You will ask, Jesus says, what you desire, and it shall be done for you. I want a mansion. I want a new car. I want a family that always does what I want. I want my life to be one big, happy, joyful fest. Good luck with that one. That's not, that is not life this side of eternity. So now let's go back and read the whole verse without interruptions based upon what we already heard. If, that is a massive if, last chance to circle it and put an arrow out into the, into the margin of your Bible. Everything depends upon the if. If you abide in me, in other words, if, if someone remains in me, Jesus says, someone stays with me, and my words abide in you. And, the, and so Jesus' words, what we have here in the Scripture, the Word of God, it is, it is part of you. We might say, then. If those two conditions are true, then you will ask what you desire. Let me stop. Because your desires will be the result of abiding in Christ and Christ's Word abiding in you. And it shall be done for you. Another version says, it will take place for you. So let's just start with a very simple, simple, basic thing. If you are abiding in Christ, the prayers of an abiding person are much more centered on the will of God and the kingdom of God than they are in being self-centered. Do we understand that? Very important. You'll, if, if you're abiding and you're abiding in Christ and abiding in his word, the focus of your prayers will dramatically change. Such prayers will be like Jesus prayed, thy will be done, not my will be done. Now, can you ask for yourself? Yes, but abiding will help you if you don't like the answer. The abiding will help you if it's not God's will for you now or maybe even in the future or you're going to have to wait. Prayer is relying on Christ and the massive if tells us that abiding in Christ is a condition of prevailing prayer. Now, dependency on Christ or relying on Christ is the conscious realization of my need for God's help as well as being completely aware of how weak my own self-sufficiency is. So I'm dependent upon Him. Now, you may say, I, excuse me, Pastor Jim, I don't really hear a lot of praying like this, to which I will draw your attention back to two things. Remember the if, and remember the American Bible Society survey. Without praying, the Scripture says we ask amiss, we ask for the wrong things, without abiding, or so without abiding, we pray for the wrong things, much of our prayer is in vain because it's out of step with what the Lord is doing. Yet, such prayers that are in step are answered. Because of his love, God often says no. Because if he gave us what we want, or what we ask for, a lot of times it would hurt us. Or sometimes what we ask for is just not his will or his way. 
So what does Jesus mean then when he says, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you? This is the problem when we take Bible verses out of context, and this is what a lot of preachers do, and we try to make them say something that was not intended. But it draws a crowd, it makes people happy, and then when they don't get an answer, you go, you don't have enough faith. (laughs) You got people coming and going on that one. What's actually happening here is Jesus is building on something he said in chapter 14. Remember we said chapter 14 was more about what God is doing. Chapter 15 is more about what we are doing. He's already told them something. Now, there's a lot going on. They're probably not going to really, they're probably not really absorbing all of this. But eventually they're going to come back to it and they're going to put all the pieces together and they're going to figure out what he was talking about. So let's look back just one chapter in chapter 14. Drawing your attention to verse 12. Jesus says this. Now, they're still at the Last Supper now. Remember, at the end of verse 14, chapter 14, we saw in a previous study, Jesus said, come on, let's go. He says this. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me. Let's stop right there. He says, most assuredly, I say to you. When the scripture says most assuredly or verily, verily, or you know, sure, you know, assuredly, assuredly, truly, truly, when Jesus says that, that's our clue for what, Bible students? Pay careful attention. Pay very, you're like, I want to pay careful attention to everything he says. Jesus is like, this is like double. This is okay. Wake the kid up there in the third row that's asleep. Everybody has to know this. It's going to be on the test. It's going to be on the quiz. Pay attention. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me. Let's stop right there. Belief, what, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? He's been saying all along that he's God. That's why the religious leaders want to string him up on a cross. Again, they're going to have to get the Romans to do it by saying he's a king. They say you, they're charged against him. You being a mere man, make yourself out to be equal with God. And Jesus didn't go, oh, you got me all wrong. He didn't say that at all. So he says, believe in me. So believe, more similar to our word trust, believe in me. The idea is a personal commitment to Jesus. So if you believe in me, the works that I do, he will do also. So he's telling this to the guys at the Last Supper. And notice this, greater works than these he will do. Now you're sitting there going, I'm going to do what Jesus did? Now, in some cases, the apostles, in very limited fashion, very, they were not doing miracles like Jesus was. And then he says, in greater works than these he will do. How? Not a, a better question than how is why? Why? He says, because I go to my Father. All of this is going to happen. Whatever he's talking about is because he goes to my Father. So it means it's after the cross, the resurrection, the ascension into heaven, and the coming of the Spirit of Christ, Galatians 4 tells us, uh, the, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit to us. So all this is going to happen after it because he goes to his Father. And verse 13, then he says, And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, Why? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. So a lot of the things that we pray for, do they bring glory to God? Well, probably not. Then he says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So what are the greater works? Typically people divide it into three categories. You could put a lot more into it. Some say it's quantity. There'll be more quantity. And you know what? 2,000 years of the church and all the number of good things that people have done, I would imagine it's fair to say that you could say that maybe the, the, the sheer number of nice things that Christian people did might exceed the sheer number of things that Jesus did. That might be a possibility. Uh, more spectacular than Jesus? No way. <laughs> 
<laughs> Not even close. No way. Now, many people say it's conversions because by the time Jesus gets to the crucifixion, he, there's almost no followers of Jesus, and then the church will become this worldwide movement. There's true conversions and there's false conversions. That's probably the best of the three options, but I want to put an asterisk on that. You see, the asterisk is Jesus said it was because I go to my Father. So it seems to be from that statement to indicate that the greater works are, are because of what Bible scholars call the new order. Now, some of you are saying, isn't that a Star Wars thing? No, that's, that's a new order. What's the new order? This new order makes it clear that, that the redemptive work, we call that, we call that the purchasing of, of, of people from the darkness, the redemptive work of the Father through the Son is now being done through followers of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit in what we would call word and deed. Let me, let me, I know this is Bible geek talk, so let me just, let me just try to put it down, put the cookies on the, on the low shelf, as we say. Basically, our fruitful Christian life comes to pass by abiding in Jesus and in prayer, asking for more fruitful lives. See, he connects what happens when he dies on the cross and he leaves with what is now in existence. So we don't compare Jesus' work to the apostles' work. There's no comparison. We don't compare Jesus' work to our work. Why? There, there's no comparison. We see that Jesus is now working through his followers, why? To bring glory to God. And, and that, as we'll see as we continue in chapter 15, is the greater things, once again, because it brings glory to the Father who sent the Son. So what does an abider, someone who's abiding in Christ, ask for in prayer? Well, they asked for being a living sacrifice, an agent for the good news in the world. That, when we are like that and we pray for that, that prayer, when we pray, God, make me an agent for the good news in the world, make me an agent of, of your will, that brings glory to God and that is a prayer that God will answer, although you may not notice the results either till someone points it out to you or you're like, you know, I used to only care about myself. I, I, don't, I don't get it. Why, why, why am I wanting to help other people? Why am I wanting to be generous? Why, why, what's going on with me? And you realize that you are a follower of Jesus who is now abiding. And so as you continue to act in that way and live in that way and pray in that way, you will notice that God will continue to give you wisdom in your prayers. I would like to put it to you this way. This is not as much as praying for blessing. This is a praying to be a blessing. Because the object of our prayers becomes, like he said here in verse 13 of chapter 14, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. It is a prayer of faith that leads to a life of faith. Once again, this is a conscious decision to rely on the Lord. It is a conscious decision to depend upon the Lord instead of myself, instead of my feelings, and instead of my emotions. 
This is a constant, a conscious, excuse me, decision and determination to seek the guidance of God in the Word of God, to seek the peace of God in the chaos of life, and to follow God's plan for my life. It is once again the acknowledgement that a branch that is not attached to the vine is dead. And if I am a branch that is not attached to the vine, I am dead too. And I'm not being fruitful and I'm not bringing glory to God. See, this is not all about getting what you want. If you want to bring glory to God, that's what he's talking about. Finally, we get to verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples. Now, you're like, oh, so I have to bear fruit to be my disciples. Well, that's actually biblically can't be true. So another version says, so you will be shown to be my disciples if you bear much fruit or you will prove to be my disciples. Now, this is quite a statement. Jesus is saying that fruit, that who produces the fruit? He does. We just bear the fruit by being connected to the vine. That that fruit, Jesus says, that I produce in and through you brings glory to my Father and at the same time proves to you that you are a follower of Jesus. Boy, this has got to kill for some people. You're abiding in Christ. You're, living, you're trying your best with God's help to live the Christian life. I hope this is killing your doubt. Somebody says to me, well, you know, it must be great feeling for you knowing you're going to heaven because you're being a pastor. I'm like, listen, man, when I get to heaven, I'm not going to tell anybody I'm Pastor Jim because nobody's going to ever heard of Pastor Jim. I'm, when people say to me, well, why do you think you're going to heaven? I go, I'm going in on the coattails of another. I'm riding the wave of another. My life is dependent upon the life of another, not my own. And his life was perfect, and I am trusting in him. That's why I can be so confident. That's why I can be so confident. And you can be too. Quite simply, as God's children begin to look more like their heavenly Father, they prove themselves to be disciples of Jesus and they continue to grow. You can't be a little kid forever. They continue to grow as Jesus' disciples. So the fruit is the result of what? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The life, death, perfect life, death on the cross, resurrection, ascension to heaven of Jesus Christ. It's the result of Jesus perfect remaining in his Father. The, his perfection in resting in his Father. His perfection in relying upon his Father and the power of the Spirit. And now that life is lived out, yes, with flaws, but that life is lived out in Jesus' followers as we abide. So, the God is, so God is glorified as you bear fruit, which really could say as you're living for the Lord and continue to live for the Lord, continue following Jesus, growing in Christ, developing in your faith, and maturing. You never mature. You are always maturing. This is an active faith. You never arrive. So God is glorified when you and I become more Christ-like. And it's important to note there are many things to, that encompass Christ-likeness. We're almost done. Really pay attention now. Really pay attention. It's important that we understand, especially in American celebrity Christianity, it's important that we understand that giftedness does not equal godliness. Did we hear that? So many of these well-known large church pastors are being taken down. Why? Because giftedness does not equal or does not necessarily equal godliness. If God gives you a gift, it is to be used for His glory not for your glory. But because so many people think they're not as gifted as the next Christian, 
They, they think it's true that giftedness and godliness are one and the same thing. They get discouraged. Nor is a flurry of activity. I got to do this for God. I got to do that for God. I got to do this for God. Nor is that necessarily godly and fruitful. Using God's gifts that he's given to you where he has planted you and living for him where you are is godly. Many of you, I know that I'm younger than a lot of you that are watching. And many of you have 20 and 30 years on me. Many of you are older or you're sick or you're caring for someone. God knows that. He totally knows that. Maybe you're older and and you've just been saying to God, you've been through a bout of illness, and you're like, God, give me a few more years to make a difference in this world. And then coronavirus hits. This was not how you planned your life at this stage of your life. Some of you wanted to get married, and you're holding off on that. Or some of you had a job promised to you, and now you can't get that job because of this virus. Some of you, like Pam and I, you, you just had your first grandchild, and you can't spend as much time with that grandchild as you wish, or you can't spend your, as much time with your own kids as, as you wish. God knew that. And God understands that. So can you bring glory to God if that's you? You better believe it. You better believe it. You most certainly can. The same is, is, is true for people who think there's no way I can abide in Christ. You can. You can bring glory to God by abiding in Christ where you are. You can bring glory to Christ by abi- uh, abiding where in Christ where God has you and let him develop Christ-likeness in you. This is particularly important in a pandemic. Bloom where you are planted. You say, I don't know how to do that. Remain in Christ. Stay in Christ. Rest in Christ. Rely on Christ and you will be abiding in Christ and the Father will be glorified in the Son. Let increasing Christ-likeness be an evidence to you that you are a child of God and you bring glory to Him. And when you mess up, the Scripture says, 1 John 1, 9, if any of us confesses our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess your sins and move on. And move on. Same is true for continuing in the faith and caring that others hear the good news and come to faith. Such gospel work and gospel prayer will deepen your faith and your desire to press on in the Holy Spirit's power in the midst of your weakness. If you are abiding in Christ, such work will drive you to prayer, not despair, and then let the Holy Spirit work through you. I just want to close with some good news, clearly from that American Bible Society survey. The church, uh, church people are in decline but there was something very, very interesting in that survey. In the United States of America, they figured out, they did it in, in conjunction, a second study with Barna organization, 67.8% of American adults, that's 172 million, are what they called Bible curious. 
What's the problem that Bible-curious people face? They're not connected to a church. They're not connected to abiders. Friend, they're not connected to you, and they're not connected to me. May we, together, like Jesus, seek them out, tell them the good news, teach them how to come to faith, teach them how to abide, and may both you and me and them glorify God. Let's stand and pray.